Women are good at a lot of things. But one of the things I'm afraid to say that we are not so great at is managing our money. How to get a mortgage? What's going on with your super? How do you properly save or, God forbid, invest? We just don't really know this stuff in the same way that men do. It is deeply gendered and we need to shift this if we're going to continue to advance towards proper equality. So, what can we do to empower ourselves financially? At All About Women, we decided to bring together some women who really know how to show you the money for some practical tips about what's really a political issue. Melinda Howes is the BT Financial Group's General Manager of Superannuation. Vanessa Patterson is Executive Manager at the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. And they are in conversation with social researcher Rebecca Huntley. So, this is how I see the issue with Australian women and money. The data shows us we are more likely to work part-time, more likely to take time out of the workplace to care. Uh, for others, not just children, but also older people. We have less super than when we retire. But we live longer, and all of us know we pay more for haircuts than men. <laughs> so we just need more money, don't we? So today, what we're going to do is talk about women and money and take a cradle-to-grave approach. And I want to start with girls. This may come as a shock to you or not, but the gender pay gap begins at pocket money. Uh, a 2015 survey in Australia found that girls receive 11% less pocket money than boys. There has similar research in the UK which showed a similar gap. I actually told my 10-year-old daughter this uh, and she said, that's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> Which means I'm doing a great job raising her as a feminist, but really not so good on the obscene language. But I told her, <laughs> I told her, keep the money for the swear jar, you're going to need it. <laughs> anyway, I want to start with both of you about what do we do about this issue, whether it be the gender pay gap or the fact that we don't feel we know a lot about money at that very early age with our girls. I might start with you, Linda. Well, I think... An issue for women all through our lives is that there's volumes of research that show we feel less confident about financial matters than men. And there's no particular reason why we should be, because most household finances are run by women, um, and research also shows that very strongly. So I, I am just wondering if, subconsciously, our girls and our daughters are getting those messages and, and those attitudes to money that we develop very early in life can be quite formative and it can be hard to break mm -hmm. um, those later on in life. So, you know, if we start off thinking that women are bad with money for some reason, then, you know, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. So, I, I don't know the answer, um, but, yeah, it, it's there's definitely a gap in our confidence levels compared with men. They're yeah. much more confident with money yeah. than we are. Vanessa, I know that you um, raised three boys, but we were talking before about that kind of the need to foster mm. in young girls this belief that maths is for everybody and the importance of, you know, STEM subjects generally. Is this, yep. is this part of, of what we need to do with girls? Um, I, look, I, I've got three sons, as you say, but I've also got a, a little granddaughter who is just so utterly divine. Um, so is my grandson too, mind you. Um, but I think that as families, I think it's really important that we value the work that girls do that women do as much as we value the work that men do. We find in our data, which um, reporting organisations, so these are employers with 100 or more employees that report to us each year, that there is a pay gap in every single industry, in every single role, including social assistance, healthcare, so your hospitals, your teachers, your nurses, there is a pay gap even in those industries where women's work is valued less. So girls often get less pocket money because they do the softer skill type work, the household duties, whereas the boys get more pocket money because they do the harder type, um, you know, chores around the house. And I think it's really important that we start to say, well, actually, no, we value the, we value what our kids are doing, whatever they're doing, whatever work it is, if they're making an effort, they get paid the same. And I think that's a really important starting point right at the very beginning. I also think it's really important for girls when they start to 
go through, when they go through university, they often don't realise that actually there is a pay gap in workplaces when they get into workplaces. So they expect that, of course, people around me are going to be getting paid the same as I am. They don't realise that maybe they need to be checking what they get paid and compare it with, um, you know, their, their colleagues. And also, I think that then helps to... Um, being forearmed and being aware of what the data shows actually helps people to understand that there is a gap and that something needs to be done about it rather than just assuming everything's fine. Yeah, and that leads us, I suppose, to that next kind of significant stage you go through, which is, is leaving school. So mm. you're either going into post-compulsory education or you might be um, in the workforce or a mixture of both. Um, again, some statistics that will um, enrage you. <laughs> so we know that women are doing, um, on average, better than men, both at post-compulsory and compulsory education. They're enrolling in universities at higher levels, although there's a bit of sex segregation in terms of um, professional streams and subjects. But anyway, um, uh, right at this moment, a female graduate salary is only 90% of a male's graduate salary, so a small amount. But remember, at the same time, women are doing better, and at this point, we're not talking about experience or anything else, just the graduate salary. Postgraduate salary is 85% of the male's graduate salary. So you're coming out mm. of university, coming out of study, you may or may not have children, probably likely not to, you've got certainly the same education debt yeah. Yeah. as um, your male uh, graduate peers. What can we do at this critical point of time, and I'd, I'd put this to both of you, to make sure that we do something to address that, that gap? I think it's really important to be aware of it, and again, I, I come back to this all the time, be aware that this is happening. When you look at workplaces, be mindful of what they're doing. We know lots of employers that are actually our employer of choice organisations that absolutely make a point that a graduate gets paid the same when they start, whether it's a male or a female. There is no difference. Others, will they rely solely on negotiations. So if a, a, a young guy goes in and can negotiate better than women, and there's research that shows that um, men are, can be better negotiators than women, but it shouldn't be up to them to negotiate. The workplace is responsible to make sure that women and men are paid the same for doing the same work. It's been illegal for several decades, in fact, not to do that. So at a graduate level where there's no, no tenure that's, uh, you know, being considered, um, as we've said, that the women are coming out with, uh, in greater numbers, but also in better, with better marks as well. So be aware, make sure that, you know, when you go for, for a job, um, that you find out what it is that, that your that employer's approach is to paying graduates and and be confident and be brave and actually ask and find out and that's what you actually should be getting. You're not doing them a favour. You're actually qualified and you work there. You want to work there and that's what actually you're entitled to. Melinda, we had a chat about the importance of financial well-being mm. on the phone as well. I wonder if this is what's critical at this stage. It is. So just on the employer choice thing, um, VT is part of Westpac. We employ 40,000 people and we mm. are one of the organisations that has got that award. We have no gender pay gap for like-to-like -like roles and it's, it's encouraging to see there's about 140 yeah. companies now that are in that group. Right. So, you know, if you're someone who's looking to enter the workforce, find out what that group is. Mm. Um, the thing about women... Oh, and the other thing that makes me really cranky about this is... So, my daughter's here in the audience. Where her, is she? Let's put a spotlight on her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Zoe and Jordan, my son, she's 13, <laughs> Jordan's 17. That generation do not think there's a problem. No. They think they're going to, as you said, Vanessa, think they're going to be yep. treated equally. And so, they may not even cross their mind to have to negotiate when you go into the workforce. I realised somewhere in my 20s that every time I went in for my end-of-year performance appraisal, that is a sales opportunity. Mm. And I started asking myself, what would a man do in this situation? And I went in and I negotiated hard mm. every time. And a lot of, and it took me till my late 20s to work out that's what I had yeah. to do. You yeah. shouldn't have to do it. But if that is my tip for someone here who's mm. entering or trying to progress your career in the workforce, that's how you've got to do it because you can be damn sure that's what the blokes are doing. Um, then on the confidence and and um, the, the question you asked me. Women, particularly in our 20s, um, 
we have the biggest gap to men at that age in financial confidence. And some research Forbes in the US did showed that only 32% of 20-something women feel confident about mm. their finances compared to over 50% of men. So not only are we not negotiating to get ahead in our careers, but we're not perhaps taking control of our finances um, early on. And for young women, it can be daunting and we can be scared. It seems um, you don't know where to start. And, and perhaps a way to think about this is to reframe it as our finances are a really key and integral part of our overall well-being. Um, financial, uh, financial worries are one of the biggest drivers mm. of stress for both um, men and women, but women actually, research has shown, feel that financial stress a lot more acutely than men. So, and a lot of young women are focused on our well-being. So if we think about finance not as some big, scary, separate thing, but an integral part of our well-being, physical, mental and financial well-being are all linked, maybe that's an easier way for it to make it more some, a priority for us to sort out. Yeah. Um, I, used to, I used to have a technique at the end of my... I was working in a big firm once, and I used to go to my boss and I'd work up the laziest guy in the executive and I'd say, I just want 25% more than him because he spends a lot of time in the toilet. <laughs> Far less productive than I am. Because I knew that he was probably being paid more than me, but perhaps didn't, I didn't last very long. Um, right. <laughs> that was when I was really at the end of it. Let's talk about babies. So again, some more statistics and you can kind of see how the gap starts to get bigger and bigger as we, get, as we go along. Um, and this kind of goes to the point you just made. Men aged 25 to 34 who have children earn more than twice the annual income of their female peers, and this gap remains through their working life. A woman returning to work from one year of parental leave experiences a reduction of her hourly wage of nearly 5%, and the figure leave leaps to 10% after a three-year break. One of the things that I've really noticed in the quality of research I do with working women is they feel that they have to barter more money for flexibility. Mm. So coming back to work, it's like it's all about just asking for flexibility and feeling like, well, I can't ask for too much. That if I'm asking for flexibility about, let's say, working from home one day, we're not talking about very big things, um, then I can't ask for more money. And I still hear some pretty horrible stories, including one story from a very, very senior woman in a financial services firm who had three children and asked to work one day a week from home, and her boss said, but how do I know you're not doing the laundry? <laughs> so we still, I still see some pretty shocking stories. Yeah. So what do we do at this really kind of critical period? Um, what can we do at this point of our life to be good with money, but also to think about that dynamic in the workplace? What, how can we really ask for what we want and what we need? I think... Well, oh, you <laughs> when you think that women actually end up with 40% of superannuation savings that men have, I think it's an extraordinary figure and there's a lot of obviously contributing factors to this. The primary one is obviously uh, the pay gap but also which, you know, one of the causes of the pay gap is time out of the workplace when you have your children um, and not only actually children but also any caring responsibilities. So I think that Leading employers and employees, it's really important to be able to say, I want to be able to keep myself employed and balance my work and life, including my caring responsibilities. In our data set, only 6% of managers actually work part-time. Now, this reflects over 4 million... Our data set reflects over 4 million employees and over 12,000 employers in Australia. So only 6% of managers work part-time. And, of course, women between the ages of 30 into their early 40s uh, are when their career is starting to um, sort of really blossom and that's when their progression starts to happen into management, whereas, in fact, in every industry, every role, um, it's male-dominated. So in management, um, males absolutely are... Uh, outnumber women uh, to a very great degree. So it's really important if to be able to understand in your workplaces, look for employers who actually embrace flexible working. Uh, we've partnered with uh, Bank West Curtin uh, Eco Economic Centre to do a deep dive into our data. And what they found was that 
employers that normalise flexible working where it was part of their workplace culture, where it wasn't an apology that you had to leave early or whatever, or work part-time when you wanted to still be a manager and progress through the organisation, um, and reported those in, that information back to the board, were actually um, had 13.6 percentage points higher number of women um, part-time managers. So it was a, a really amazing piece of information. Look for employers who embrace flexibility. That will enable you to keep yourself in the workforce and still balance and manage your work-life balance, whether it be for caring responsibilities or not, actually. A lot of women and families don't have children, and so this is about balance in, in your life as well. So I think it's really critical for that. Yeah, Melinda. Yeah, and um, our organisation actually says all roles must be flexible and there was some significant resistance when that was brought in, can I just say, um, in some quarters. People were being unflexible about flexibility. They were, yes. yeah. Um, it, it's been going now for oh, well over a year. It's going really well. Yep. Um, even prior to that, so I, I work in, a, I'm a general manager of the general management team of BT, eight out of nine are women. Um, all of us have some sort of other responsibilities. My leadership team, people that report to me, um, again, we're all juggling other responsibilities, caring or whatever outside of work. So to be able to have that flexibility, although, you know, it doesn't, it, it's not easy, right? Because the work doesn't no. go away. We were no. all talking about that backstage. So I sometimes joke to my team, I don't care which eight, 18 hours a day you work or where you are when you do it, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. as long as you get the work done. Because, <laughs> you know, the workload's relentless, right? But um, to be able to, no one raises an eyebrow if someone leaves early to get their kids yeah. from school mm, or, yeah. or what have you. Um, the, the statistics, though, on how many of us have those big breaks out of career or those part-time um, uh, work, it's significant and it does, that's why we get 42% yep. of the super. Yeah. So um, there was a great bit of research that the Sydney Women's Fund did recently called Hopes, Dreams and Fears of Sydney Women. And here are the stats from that. 40% of us in Sydney put caring ahead of work and are carers on a regular basis. In order to care, we have 23% reduced work hours, 18% have take signif taken significant time off, 10% have resigned, and 5% have turned down a promotion. Mm. So you can see how then yeah. that, for the rest of your yeah. life, sort of impacts your total yeah. earning capacity, how much you can fund your retirement. I did that research. I did that's that great research. Yeah, thank you I didn't much. know you'd done that. <laughs> there's an amazing, if you just Google this, there's an amazing slide deck of this research. Yeah. Um, no, I've seen it. And fears did Sydney it. women. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm telling them. No, no, yeah, definitely going to say it. Um, I want to talk, and it seems weird, I want to talk about superannuation in your 20s and 30s. Oh, thank God someone wants to talk. So about it's interesting. So I, I was, I am, look, a freak, but I decided at 18, and I'm now, you know, um, <laughs> my my mum got divorced. She in the divorce settlement, she um, she bartered the family home for any any further money from my father's superannuation. Yep. And at, up until that time, super could be you could kind of cash out your super when you moved. And she was a part time teacher, and there was some real concern. She really really had no super. She's okay for a whole range of reasons. But I remember at eighteen thinking. I'm, I plan to live to 90 and I better have super. So I opened mm. a super um, account at 18. And I have talked to my friends in my 20s and 30s about where's your super, what are you doing? And um, all the data shows that women think less about retirement planning at every decade. Yeah. Men are thinking more about retirement and their super in their 20s and 30s. Mm. As you know, thinking about it at 50 or 60 is too late, yeah, and there's a gender gap, not just in the amount of super you have, but when you start thinking about it and taking it seriously. Mm. And then when you re-enter the workforce after having yep. those, you know, those caring responsibilities, because of the caps, you can't catch can't up, catch yeah. up no. as well. Yep. So it's, yep. it's doubly difficult. So, look, what would you say to women <laughs> about super in their 20s? Well, our research has shown that women think about super a bit like they think about smoking. Right. You know you have to do something about it, but you just don't do it. <laughs> okay. You know, you know, it's it's yeah. bad for you to not manage yeah. your super. Um, no one wants to think about getting old, and so behaviourally, mm -hmm. we are geared towards not dealing to long-term financial needs. We deal to immediate financial needs. So everything's stacked against us in terms of being interested in taking control of this. And what happens to women and men is you get to about 45 and you have the oh shit moment. Mm. Just looking to see how they sign that. <laughs> and, um... <laughs> Do it again. Shit. 
Ah, I remember that, yeah. I've got 20 years to go, and by then it can be really hard to catch up. Now, yeah. everyone knows about the power of compound interest, taking control of your super early Does on. Does everybody in your know about the power of... Hands up if you know about the power of compound oh, interest. Sorry. Oh, yes. <laughs> there we go. But not everybody. We want them to be okay. smarter. Tell them about compound interest. Well, the power of compound interest is a dollar that you put... Uh, that you invest now, uh, say at 20, versus a dollar you invest at 45, it'll be worth, I don't know, I can't do the maths yeah. in my head, yeah. two or three times uh, the amount more. when you get to retirement. Yeah. So taking control of it early is really important. And there are five really simple things to do to take control of your super. One is find out where it is. Really easy. Um, there are all these online tools. The tax office has got them. If you're a BT or Westpac customer, you can do a thing called SuperCheck. Just Google it. You can find it in less than a minute. Then you can see where it all is and hopefully get it together and work out what to do with it. Secondly, very basically, give your super fund your tax file number so you're not paying a whole lot of tax you don't need to pay. Give them your current mobile address and email so they can contact you, tell you what's going on. Nominate your beneficiaries. If you have dependents, make sure they're down as receiving your super if something should happen to you. So there's these... Oh, and find out where it's invested and have a look at that and make sure you're happy with your investment option. All super funds offer you choice of investments. Yeah. So those five basic things, this used to take hours to do, paperwork, it's all online, it's really easy, it's quick to do, um, and yeah. One yeah. of the other things we that's can all important that. about that <laughs> is that isn't that critical to make sure that there isn't too much super theft happening out there? particularly for young, younger... Well, it's important to make sure you're actually getting the yeah, yeah, super that's being deducted from your pay, that it's actually mm. then going into your super funds. Yeah. So there's laws changing about that, but it's, there's been some examples of it not being paid, yeah. for sure. Great. We're going to talk back up in a minute again about part-time work and caring responsibilities, because that continues, you know, throughout people's lives. But again, let me go back to some stats. It's not all about having a baby. The income gap exists with men and women without children. It's still significant. Women without children in Australia today, aged 45 to 54, earn 69% of what men without children earn. So it's not about the baby. Even if you are in the workplace without children, there's a gap. What do you think is happening there? I don't know, but I'm really angry about yeah. it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> Is it about lack of confidence? Is it about the fact that women are much more likely to be in certain kinds of industries that are paid less or valued less? I mean, the typical one yep. is nurses versus engineers, you know. Um, I mean, what do you think is... I mean, I might go yeah, to you, Vanessa, on that. Sure. So, we do know that there are many barriers to women in the workplace. Um, and some of those include discrimination that's direct, that's explicit, and some that's implicit. Uh, certainly societally there are stereotypes that exist for women and that obviously carries through into the workplace as, as well. The role that women and men can do, should do, don't do, can't do, all of those things are stereotypes that, that go into the workplace and implicit, um, you know, often people don't even realise that those biases are actually occurring. So it's really important to be aware of those. There's a lot of research around the types of things that are actually uh, going on there as well. The research also shows that actually women get paid less purely because they are women, so absolute direct discrimination, uh, which is which I think is you know we all aware of that. It's it's actually quite shocking, but certainly um, decisions around recruitment and pay. There's biases that occur there, again reflecting the stereotypes. Women and men absolutely work in different industries and in different roles. Sixty percent of Australian employees work in a um, gender-dominated industry, whether it be female-dominated or male-dominated. Um, and generally, there's an acceptance that the work that women do is, and we touched on this a little earlier, is valued less. So your female-dominated industries are paid less, um, and your male-dominated industries are paid more. Your male-dominated roles are paid more, and your female-dominated roles are paid less. What's really interesting about this is because you always hear, oh, well, you know, men are paid more in these um, industries because they've worked longer there and, and the like, so experience, you know, the tenure argument. But actually what we see, which I think is quite shocking, is that when women go into male-dominated roles, male-dominated industries, the pay starts to go down. When you see men going into female-dominated industries and roles, the pay actually starts to go up. 
So it is this whole, it's, it's actually really quite alarming. And again, there's this whole notion around, well, you know, women can't negotiate as much. And certainly I think it's important for us all to participate in some sort of negotiation training. But that's not the whole picture. That's actually not, that's, you know, as employers, we, we are responsible to making sure that actually we do what we can to ensure there's a level playing field for men and women in our organisations. The lack of, lack of flexible working in senior management positions is a significant contributor to the, uh, the, the organisation's pay gap. Critical to be able to get women into management. Again, work, being able to work flexibly and being able to um, access part-time or reduced hours is really important to be able to, to, to manage that. So I think it's really, that's a key factor and contributor to in being able to be successful in your work and your, your um, family or home mm. challenges and balances. Yeah. I think the fact that women also do one hour and 46 minutes of domestic duties to every one hour that a man does is a really important issue of why men also need to be able to access flexible working. And in workplaces, that just doesn't happen. Mm. And we know the issues that women face in the workplace when we want to work flexibly and the pushback and the career impact that we feel it has. And for men, it's even more so. Yeah. So I think it's really critical. Linda, anything to add to that before we... Anything to add? No. 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 <laughs> <laughs> I'm still angry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's good. Stay angry. Um, let's talk about part-time work. So about 70% of part-time work is undertaken by women... Um, in Australia. I mean, interestingly, if you look at the OECD tables, part-time work is higher even amongst men compared to um, other countries as well. So we're a, a bit of a country where part-time work is a thing. You know, when you, when you talk to people who are experts from various disciplines about how we deal with the gender pay gap, some people say, look, part-time work's a trap and mm. you, know, you should really be working full-time. Other people say, well, it's just realistic given whether you have children or not or whether you want to do a range of things, care mm. for older parents, care for any a child living with a disability. It's not just about babies. It's about being human. Mm. We don't all necessarily want to work relentlessly, you know, eight till six, five days a week for the rest of our lives. I just wanted to get both of you to reflect on how you feel generally about part-time work. Is, it, is the framework of part-time work the problem? Should we... What should we be doing, given so many women um, either want to or have to work part-time um, for a whole range of reasons? Well, one thing I'd say is, from a company's perspective, if the company offers and embraces part-time work, the quality of people we get working with us is just amazing. So, some of the best people I've ever had in my teams have been part-time usually women, juggling the family and, yeah. and the home. Um, I, I've done everything. I had 10 years where I was out of the full-time workforce in one um, form or another. For some of that, I took more flexible roles mm -hmm. for probably half the pay I'd previously yeah. got, but where I could, um, you know, run my own show a little more, mm -hmm. smaller organisations. Other times I worked full-time and other times I worked four days a week. But what, what I found myself when I was working that four days a week, I was doing a full-time workload. Yeah. Mm, My yeah. KPIs were the same as all the other Everyone senior leaders nodding. who were men. Yeah. And I just got paid 80% what they... Yeah. Well, probably less. 80% of my pay. I don't know what they were on. But yeah. I, I just took a 20% pay cut and did all the work anyway. So if I had my time again, what I would ask for is flexibility and I would stay full-time but have flexibility on where I yeah. was and what hours I did it. So if I'm working from, you know... Eight, eight till ten on a Sunday morning yeah. to make up the hours because I left early, then that's my business. So breaking away and, and really focusing on what you can achieve. Mm. Yes. And productivity as and, opposed and to part-time. And, and talk to your manager about output, not input. Mm. This is not about the hours your bum is on the seat in the mm. office being seen to do stuff. This is about what you're producing. Yeah. So talk to them about how allowing you this flex, flexibility means you can continue to produce and then demonstrate what you have been producing and yes, contributing that, and yeah. why you're valuable yeah. in doing that. Right. Anything else to add around? The only thing perhaps I would add is that um, sometimes it can still be very challenging to work full-time flexibly uh, yes. because <laughs> of the, the, the number of hours are still high, um, particularly if, you know, as the primary carer of, the children, of your children and the like. So one thing that I think you can do and we can all do is that if we want to work reduced hours than a full-time work load is to work with your manager 
uh, to actually redesign the role. Job redesign is a critical piece of working part-time hours and not having a pay equity issue because you're absolutely right, you end up working the same number of hours and you get paid less for it. So it's about what part of my role can I do in a three-day, four-day uh, time frame and then this part, what are we going to do with this? And a good employer that wants to support you in working flexibly and keep you um, will actually be, that, that is a really important part of what they can do for you and the workplace as well, for our morale across the workplace. Yeah. It's a really important part around that. Yeah. Let's talk about retirement and I want to share with you one of my favourite stories from almost 20 years of research. I was in Adelaide um, going to a house to do a focus group of all of these women in their late 70s who were part of a church knitting group. And we were sitting around. They spent a lot of the discussion complaining about their husbands, <laughs> some of whom had mismanaged their super during the global financial crisis. Anyway, I asked them, in, at this stage of your life, what are, what's your biggest like, hope and you know, plans for the future? And I was writing. And the host said, they're all sipping these beautiful tea in China cups. And the host said, it's not so much a plan as a dream, a dream all our husbands will die. Oh. We can all use the money as we'd like. We'd all like to go on a cruise. And I, I looked up to laugh. No one was laughing. <laughs> Ambitious. <laughs> and so, so maybe a man really is a financial plan after all. <laughs> because these women were intensely frustrated because they had, most of them hadn't worked. Their husbands had been, some of them quite senior. And they held the purse strings very mm. tightly. And these women had, had no say, even though they'd been carers and contributed to the family home, no say in what to do with the money. And after the... Uh, no one laughed. And after it, the husband, the grumpy husband, kind of I was waiting for my taxi, grumpy husband um, came up and I almost said, I'd be cooking your own food from now on. <laughs> <laughs> but I think what... It, I'm, I tell you that story because I love telling that story, but also because it just shows you that at that age, you may not have a lot of options about how you no. want to um, live the last years of your life. So... Mm. I mean, what are the, what's the advice that you could give people, even quite late in life, even in their 60s as they're kind of facing retirement, to make sure that you have some economic leverage, some understanding of finances, so you make sure that your time in retirement or your time in the last 20 years of your life, other than, you know, we don't all want to kill our husbands. <laughs> um, what, what can we do? Well, first I just want to talk about different generations, because yeah. that generation of women, as you pointed out, a yeah. lot of them maybe didn't work yeah. or only had only worked very early on and were forced to give up yeah. their jobs when they got married or yeah. had children. Yeah. Um, so they're in a, a, a very, very own. difficult financial situation. Mm -hmm. And then that, that um, super gap we talk about now where women have 42% of men, that's for people retiring now. So that baby so those, those, Yeah, so those women, again, had some of those issues and maybe had le a lot less time yeah. in the workforce. People coming through the workforce now have 9.5% of their pay going into super, women, all yep. the way through. Now, we yep. still have the gender pay gap and the time yep. out of the workforce, but the gap won't be as big when those women get there, yep. but it will still be large. So what are the things we can do for any age in terms of getting our finances under control? And it's never too late to do this. The first and most important thing, and this is the first thing any financial planner will sit down and do with their client, and I did for the first time after my divorce, when I went and saw a financial planner, and I work in finance, right? I have for 30 years. Um, the first thing they'll do is go, where's your money going? What are you spending it on? I went, I've got no idea. So the first thing they do, it sounds really boring, is a budget. And all a budget is, is going, where is your money going mm. now? Mm. Now, back five years ago when I went and saw my planner, that was kind of a long exercise that involved spreadsheets and trawling through bank accounts and all that sort of thing. Now you can do it on an app. There's all these apps. Mm. Just Google an app on um, budget app and five or six really good ones will come up. They're free or really low cost. Mm. It trawls through your bank account and just goes, here's where your money's going. Mm. So the first thing is work out, where is my money going now? How much am I getting in? Where's it going out? And when money's all electronic, it can be really hard to work out yeah, yeah. where it's going mm -hmm. and what you're spending it on. Yeah. And then what my planner did, he's put me on um, pocket money, right? Yeah. So what I, <laughs> what I do, I've got two debit cards. I've got a one, I pay myself an allowance every week. Yeah. 
and that's my spending money. It goes onto a debit card, and that I tap that and use it for my shopping and whatever, and when that's gone, it's gone, and when yeah. it gets down to the end of the week, I start feeling poor because it's yeah. almost all gone. And then I have a discretionary spending account for yeah. things like haircuts yeah. and those sorts of things. Same deal. I fund that every week. And then I have a holiday funding account. Well, women are very goals focused. Yeah, so when, mm. if we think about our finances in terms of yeah. goals, that's something that we find easy to do. Um, and then the rest of it sits in my mortgage offset account because mm. I've got a big mortgage and I don't touch it. Mm. But and I, by doing that discipline, and it sounds silly, I get this thing out, it's got weekly spending written on it and people laugh at me. Um, by doing that, I've reduced my weekly spending by 20%. Yep. Yep. And so if you and don't again, know where it's compound, going... that yeah. compound interest. That, and that yep. goes towards paying off my mortgage. Yeah. So, But everyone can do this, whether you've got credit card debt, all those sorts of things. So work out where it's going. Be aware of what you're spending and you can make some smarter decisions about some of the maybe frivolous things that, yeah. that we all like to do. Yeah. And then um, the next thing to do is get some emergency money. Every woman needs yeah. a secret mm. stash. doesn't yeah. have to be secret, but you need an emergency no. money there just in case the worst happens, a couple of weeks' income, yeah. and then you start paying yeah. off your debt. So these things are... It's not rocket science. You no. know, it's the stuff we all do. We all manage... Yeah. Um, a lot of us yeah. manage household finances. Yeah. It's not as hard as that. Let's just quickly, because we're going to go to questions in a minute, anything to add to that, about the importance of, um, you know, it's never too late to start thinking about no. a kind of financial plan so you don't have to kill your husband. <laughs> well, it's interesting because I, I remember someone once said to me very early on, don't let a man be your financial plan. You know, it's important to have yourself to have your own account. There's nothing wrong with your own, having your own account. I have my own account. My husband has his own account. We have joint expenditure. But it is really important to be aware of it, to have a goal and keep keep that and be mindful of the fact that, you know, you are working together, but you, it's important to also have that independence of for yourself. Absolutely. All right. We're going to get the house lights up um, and have an opportunity for questions. So we've got up there at the microphone, up there at two, and there as well at the bottom at number one. I don't know if there's any men in the audience. If there are, the Prime Minister of Australia wants you to ask all the questions. <laughs> I think they just slank out. We wouldn't want to rise to have you pushed down in any way. Are there any men in the audience? No? Good. Excellent. <laughs> um, let, I just had to put that in. Um, we have a question over... Oh, no, could you go up to the microphone? So if you... Uh, I know, or down here, number one. If you want to pop to the front. Can you see? There we are. Because we want to. We want everybody... I want to hear you and everybody else does. Thank you. Go ahead. I mean, that's something I've been trying to do for, like the past 12 months, um, but I, I mean, when they, uh, basically when you just kind of get like, oh, budgets are restricted, can't do it, and of course, there's elements where I just feel like there's just a brick wall being put up in front of me. Um, is there anyone that you can go, I mean, where does HR play a role in this beyond your manager? Um, probably a couple of questions you can ask. One is where do, where do, does my income rate on the salary survey for equivalent roles? So you can ask that from HR and they can get you the data. Um, the, the second thing to point out to the person you're negotiating it with is how much their budget would be blown. If you were to resign, they'd have to then get the costs of recruiting and training a new person in to do your role. So it may actually be cheaper to give you the raise than to ha actually have to put a new person in. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. It is, it's really difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Because it is. we, I mean, anecdotally, you hear, women hear that, and then they find out that actually somebody did get a bonus. Well, and I think that's the thing is you get a bonus or a pay rise because they stamp their feet. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. It's about being aware of and asking the question: uh, Am I the only one, or are others in the team getting pay rises? Because you can then see. I mean, sometimes there's legitimate constraints on business where no one gets a pay rise, no one gets any bonuses, and that's that's absolutely fine. But if, in fact, you find, well, you know, how many males in your team, how many females in the team, how many of those are not getting pay rises? It's And, and HR can also... I mean, they obviously won't give you um, information directly as far as individual salaries, but, but trends and patterns, like you were saying, mm -hmm. um, they absolutely can give you that information. It's interesting, though, women 
tend to not want to... The research shows that women often don't like asking for pay rises because if they're not back, there's a relation... Their fear is there's a relationship impact that we don't want to be seen as being too aggressive in wanting the money and that is my relationship with my manager now going to be damaged because of it, that men don't have that same constraint when they're when they're asking for it. But I think it is about having the information at your fingertips and finding out, is, it, is this something that's actually happening across the board? Is this a, a business-wide decision um, or just one get, for you? You can do a bit of your own research as yeah. well on what, what other organisations are paying for similar roles, and that's always good to throw into the conversation. Um, I'd also say, I think, um, in, again, anecdotally, in my experience, women are also quite not as good as asking for training opportunities. So, you know, mm. I, you know, there might be a course or a conference or a whole range of things that are part of your professional development that you can also throw into the mix. And um, again, I think, you know, I think... I don't want to kind of frame it as we're not good at these things. Sometimes we ask yeah. and we don't get it, but there are just it's another avenue to make sure that your employer is giving you all the things you need for your career. Thank you. Thank you. Um, maybe we'll go up to the balcony, to number two up there. Uh, hi, my question is when you... ..about super, you said check where it's invested. So, I have a daughter in her 20s... ..and she had to make a decision about her super. So, she just asked other people what they're in... ..and she found for her profession, health profession... ..that she signed up to that. But finding out where it's invested and is there something better, is there an app for that? <laughs> um, she can go to the fund that she's with yeah. and um, there's a lot of information there and if she rings them, they can talk her through all the different investment options in the fund and they can actually explain those to her and help her make a decision. Yes, but they'll only be talking about... ..because they want her to stay there, they yes. will be giving biased information. Where can you find impartial information about your super and where okay. it's invested and how so to get it out without losing a whole lot of money and put it where it should be? Yeah, so, so there's two different issues there. One is which super fund are you in? And then within the fund, there's usually a range of investment choices of where you can actually put it. The fund will just put it in a default option if you don't say where you want it. But you can actually choose other options. So that's what I was talking about. But in terms of finding... Um, Better super. Other, other super around the industry, there's a number of ratings houses that compare the superannuation funds with each other. Racing um, houses. Ch Chant West is one and they have an Apple rating system so you can look up that, their rating system and is see... Is that C-H-A-N-T? Yes. Chant One. Chant West. Chant super West. Ratings. There's a range of different ratings houses that do those comparisons. Oh. Um, and super funds all have an information sheet called a My Super Dashboard. And you can just get them and look at them next to each other and see very clearly all of the fees and the performance are disclosed on the same basis. And that's yeah. the only place where they're disclosed yeah. on the same basis the in the entire industry. Yeah. So on the dashboard. Yeah. My Super Dashboard... Each super fund will have that. Yeah. So okay. if she looks at her funds one and other funds ones, Great. she gets a direct comparison. Thank you. Hopefully that was helpful. Down here to number one. Hi. Um, so I just know I was sitting here with like another younger friend of mine and it was a very helpful talk, but a lot of the time I was thinking like, what is super? And she kind of leant over and was like, why are women getting paid less than men even though there are laws against it? And it kind of raised questions with me about the education of young women in relation to finance and kind of the economy. So I was wondering what your opinions are on how Australia is handling the education of young people in finance and how that will kind of impact things like the gender pay gap in, in the future. So. Great question. One of the things that I would say about the gender pay gap is there's a lot of confusion about it. So whilst there are organisations absolutely that on a like-for-like -like basis are not paying the same amount with their... If you know, for men and women. That's actually been illegal for several decades. Um, we refer to that as gender pay equity. The gender pay gap that we quote, that the ABS quotes, that's usually in the media, 
is actually reflective of women being in the lower levels in an organisation and men dominating the management ranks, so they're paid more um, in the management ranks. So the high, the pay gap that you hear quoted means you've got really high pay and many more men in those top management ranks to below. But yes, I think, I think your point about um, educating women and women being aware of that and then looking at ways that we've talked about, about maximising your opportunities when you're in the workplace to actually, so that you actually can access management um, roles, get the training and the development you need to be able to um, progress through that is a critical piece in that. I mean, this goes to your point about financial wellbeing. Um, you know, should we have more direct teaching of, you know, men and women, but particularly women in schools mm. to understand? They, they have beyond, math, beyond the focus of making sure women do math. It's, it's very difficult, mm. right? Because, I mean, 30 years ago when I entered the workforce, I, I was determined that my mission in life was to make Australians financially literate. And squillions of dollars have been spent by government, by financial services organisations, by a range of... And some fantastic work's been done, but the, we haven't moved the dial at all. Mm. We now have financial literacy being Im embedded in curricula. Mm. So if the, when, when our kids learn maths in school now, they, they learn about um, things like um, percentages with questions like, you know, mummy has, has this much debt on her credit card, daddy has that much <laughs> debt on his credit card. If, <laughs> you know, if they're paying 18% interest on that, then what's mm. the impact mm. on the family finances? So there's, that sort of stuff is starting to come in. Mm. Um, so that'll be interesting to see if that then moves the dial for yep. kids who've been, had those concepts embedded in some of their, their subject matter through school, but it's very difficult. Yeah. Have you learned anything at all at school about um, financial literacy? A little bit. Well, I know at our school we have a little bit of a different thing. Our principals in implemented a subject called Renaissance Studies, where what? she teaches the entire year group. And in year 12, we focus on, like, credit cards, interests and mortgages. Yeah. But that's not... In Renaissance of, Studies? Yes. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Love it. That's great. Yes. <laughs> um, credit cards today or 400 years ago? <laughs> sure, both. Thank you very much for your question. I'll go up to um, two up there. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for the tips and to the woman who was before me. Um, I've just joined a women's super, Australia's first women's super fund and I've found like some of the um, tools and tips. It's called Verb Super for anyone who's interested, but um, it's great to talk about to your friends about um, super. Uh, I just want to acknowledge also that these issues are compounded for women in same-sex relationships, women with disabilities, women who don't have access to high-paying corporate jobs and women of colour. Um, but my, my question is as well, how do women who are participating in the gig, gig economy or freelancers, what are some tips uh, for women like us who, um, you know, we don't have employers who contribute to our super? Mm. That's yeah. a, fant a fantastic It's a really yeah. good question and um, a lot of self-employed people around Australia, there's a bit, and more women run small businesses mm, yeah. than, than men and so we often don't have then that 9.5% um, going away into super. So what I would say is do that yourself anyway. It, it can be really hard to do when your income's lumpy, but that, that's part of the whole looking after yourself mm. first, that um, if you're not putting that away, you're going to be behind, even the women who are having all the challenges they have in, in um, corporate roles where that's mm. done for them. So if you think about that 9.5% as that goes first, and then the rest of it is my actual money I'm, I'm living off, that would be to just match those super arrangements and put it in place for yourself would be my tip. Thank you. But, I mean, it's a broader question, though. You know, one of the things that you often hear from women who are really just, you know, maybe it might be a single mum who's got a couple of kids and you're really, you're relying on part-time work or casual work with a mixture of um, money you can get from the government. And obviously we've seen um, some pressure put on mm. those kinds of um, payments to those kinds of women. Um, they often feel like, well, what's the point of getting financial advice because financial advice is all geared to people with, with kind of money and I mm. feel like I don't have money. So how we address that, how we make sure that they're getting all the information they need as well as um, improving issues around poverty for women in various communities. Next question down at number one. Yeah, hi, um, thanks so much for your talk. So I'm 22 and I'm a full-time student at uni and I've, for the first time in my life I've got like a stable income and I'm at the point where I'm starting to be able to save money and things like that. 
and every conversation that I have with my mum, she's always like, oh, you should be investing it. Um, I really appreciated your tips about how to check your super fund and I was wondering if you had any similar tips about how to invest because in my mind I'm like, no, I've just done all this work to get this money, like why am I going to give it away? And like, <laughs> what? <laughs> um, and I don't really understand like what investing is and what that looks like in practice. So I was wondering if you could give a few tips. Get a big truck of avocados. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? Well, Tips first of investment. all, I can't give you financial advice because no, I'm there's not no licensed to do that. Um, but, I mean, I think it's fantastic that you're interested in investing mm. at such a young age. That's absolutely what um, young women should be thinking about and not many of us do at your age, so congratulations for that. Um, I, so I think the first thing is... Um, if you've got a stable income, you've obviously worked out what you're spending and you've got some discretionary income, then it's what do you do with that. Um, building up an emergency fund, really important. Um, you probably don't have a lot of debt yet, I would imagine. And then it's, so investing is really, superannuation is just investing within a, a tax advantage structure. So all of the sorts of things that are in super funds are available out, outside super funds as well. So I think the aim is to work out what your goals are and then put bits of money towards that. So if you've got a goal that I, I'm going to have some short-term spending, I might want to save up for a holiday, for example. I might want to save um, to try and get into the property market and save a deposit. So um, that might be some medium-term money. And then I might want to start putting a little bit extra away for later on, either in super or outside super. So that's longer-term money. Um, so what I'd say is do some online research about... Um, suitable investments for different time periods um, because you don't want to be locking short-term money away in long-term sort of investments that then you may not be able to um, get hold of when you want it. Um, but it's hard as well for someone of your age to access financial advice because it can be quite expensive, but there's a lot of websites and things like that where you can start to research and get some information. And, um, yeah, so... Your super fund might be able to help as well because they can talk you through different types of investments and how they work and from that you can kind of pick up what short-term versus long-term investing is about. Yeah. So there's no sort of really easy answer that this is an I awesome place to go. ASIC has a really good website as well that tells you about um, investing and money. So there's a few places you can go. It's great that your mum wants to talk to you about that. It Maybe is. you should get her financial advisor to <laughs> if she doesn't have one. Okay. Up here, back to number two. Hi, I'm, my question is really around about how do you trust the financial advice that you're getting today? Like, we know that the bank uh, banking industry has been under a lot of scrutiny lately, particularly around financial advice. Um, you know, and I guess as well, you know, in the back of my mind is um, my financial security being single and you know, no home, no house, I guess, to call my own and, and all that sort of stuff and the growing number of people over 60 becoming homeless, in, women becoming homeless. How, what, what sort of tips and uh, securities are out there for people seeking financial advice? Yeah, really, really good so question. Important. And I think with, and, and I have a financial advisor, as I mentioned, um, with any financial advisor that you're interviewing or talking to, what's really important is you have the right one that's going to suit you. Um, first thing to ask is what their qualifications are. Make sure you've got one that's qualified. And the law has kind of um, sort of stipulates a lot of this now. Make sure you know how they're being paid and what fees they will charge you and what they will earn off any investments they place for you. And again, all of this they have to tell you about. And then thirdly, um, talk to them about your financial goals, or that's often something you explore together, and just see what they say. Most advisors will give you a free initial conversation with them, and really just suss them out and find out if you think that they're going to be able to help you. Are they adding value in that first conversation? Because I actually interviewed a couple before I found the one that I really thought was right for me that I got along with. But those ones are the basics. How are they being paid and make sure that they're uh, fully qualified because the financial advice is now a profession and make sure you get a professional financial advisor. But, I mean, can we assume that a financial advisor attached to a bank is still going to encourage you to buy their products over other people's products? All financial advisors have a best interest duty. Right. So their job is to actually look at your financial circumstances and recommend mm -hmm. um, the products or services that are best for you, right. and that is their legal requirement. 
Right. So, and that's regardless of whether they're working for a bank or a large or small financial planning firm or they're your corner accountant. They all have, yep. if they're offering financial yep. advice, those yep. same requirements. Yep. Do you have an accountant? No. All right. <laughs> that might be a, quite a good first step to get to get an accountant you trust that might be able to um, maybe make some advice from then on if you yeah. don't want to go to a big... They have to be an advisor, though, to be yep. able to do the financial advice Yes, that's part. true. Yep. Yep. Appreciate that. Thank You're you. You're welcome. Thank you. Down there. Thank you. Similar question, really. Um, I've looked at um, websites like Kantar to compare different superannuation, and I find it hugely frustrating and complicated. It is, um, yes. Beside four level of risk, um, how do you, where do you go to find more information that you can actually understand without being part of the finance industry? Yeah, look, I, I will agree. It can be very confusing and the information you get is in different formats in different places. As I said, the only place you can compare like with like on exactly the same basis is those My Super dashboards and each super fund has to publish one. So if you put those side by side, you'll very clearly see um, those funds compared on the same basis. Um, the other way to do it would be to look at research houses and they make subjective ratings of superannuation funds based on their research and they actually rank them on that basis. So they're probably the two different approaches you could take. But uh, I agree it, it can be quite difficult because and the, the key things to think about are what fees you're paying, what insurance you're getting, what the fund's performing over the long term and what services you get. They're the sort of key dimensions, yeah. and different funds will be strong in some areas and different ones will be strong in others. It's are you getting overall a good outcome? Mm. But I, I agree with you. It's something that the law is moving towards making the disclosure and making the information a lot more uniform, but at the moment, only those My Super dashboards give you like with like. Right, okay. Hopefully, in the future, that will change, but yeah, yeah. thank you. Yes, <laughs> so the ratings houses do it at the moment right. more subjectively. Okay, yeah. thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. Anybody up at number two? So I've recently retired and thankfully I've been fortunate enough to work in industries where I have, um, apart from a brief time out with children, I have been paid on par. Um, so I've retired on a fairly good superannuation package that probably exceeds um, men. But... Along with my working life, when I went back to uni 24 years ago, um, I did a subject called Australian Labor Relations and did um, a big research project on equal pay. And one of the things that came out of that was that in Australia, the whole issue around pay and, and pay equality was based on a 1907 fruit pickers harvesters case. Um, and the social values of the time was that um, while there were a few women that worked like widows or abandoned wives, um, the overwhelming majority were the nuclear family where the husband went out to work. And so the judge in making um, the decision around equal pay for these fruit pickers decided that even though he acknowledged there were a few women that had to support children, the norm was that the men worked so therefore he'd pay, he'd pay women less because that would take away from men's wages. And as a result, the history, um, Australia, when I did my research in 1994, was one of the most sex segregated industries in the world, what you were saying about women's work and men's work. Um, and one of the things I remembered at the current rate of change, it was going to take about 120 years for women to catch up. So my question is, in the 24 years since then, what has changed for women that sped up that process both um, in terms of government legislation and also in terms of social expectations, both women, mm. so younger women are expecting more, and how have men moved, and, and specifically not companies, but how have companies in general moved yeah. to bridge that gap? I think, Vanessa... Wow, there's a lot of questions yeah. in there. <laughs> um, We've got 42 seconds. 42 seconds, answer. OK, no pressure, no pressure. Um, Ultimately, I think that what's what's happened is that um, obviously gender reporting is, has bipartisan support, both sides of politics support gender reporting, so that employers understand what where they 
compare them or how they can compare themselves to their competitors around different measures in this area. So gender composition, so that employers report to us on gender composition, pay gaps, um, sexual harassment, sex-based harassment, discrimination broadly. And I think that there's been, I mean, we've certainly seen 70% of organisations that report to us now have a policy or a strategy around some form of gender equality. We are seeing change. We are seeing women move through the ranks and management categories, um, albeit at a much slower rate than we would like. Um, and there's always there's always a balance between, uh, you know, regulation and and not having any regulation. So I do think that that in, there are a lot of really good employers that are really focused on this and they are our employers of choice. If you're looking to work in a workplace that are not, is not perfect by any stretch of the imagination but are doing some key really good things that where research shows makes a difference around improving gender equality outcomes, um, particularly for women in workplaces, look at one of those employers of choice. Right. Good place to end. Thank you for all the questions and please thank... Melinda Howes and Vanessa. Thank you. Thank you.